Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. The Guardian. With less than three weeks to go until the planned June 21st unlocking, Boris Johnson is under pressure from some scientists who warn it could prove costly. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. Subject to the impact of step three on the data, we remain on track to move to step four on the 21st of June. Last week, the Prime Minister really needed something to lift his spirits after his former top advisor, Dominic Cummings, accused him and his ministers of completely messing up the pandemic response, which of course the PM pushed back on. His secret wedding at the weekend to Carrie Simmons may well have helped, but what he could really do with now is a solid sign that he's able to unlock the country by June 21st. There's a slight snag. Johnson has said there is still nothing in the data at the moment that means we cannot go ahead with step four. However, he said, scientists still need a little bit longer to figure out just how much protection the vaccines are providing against a new surge. So caution is still needed. So what is Johnson, who's renowned mainly for wanting people to like him, going to do? Also this week, Labour leader Keir Starmer appeared on Piers Morgan's Life Stories on Tuesday night. How will this type of personal media campaign go down with the voters? Meanwhile, in Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon set out her initial priorities for their newly elected government. But those plans won't come without their challenges. Later on, Libby Brooks looks at what this new parliament might bring. Plus, a week after results of a controversial inquiry into Islamophobia and other forms of discrimination in the Conservative Party are published, Aubrey Allegretti speaks to one senior Muslim in the party, who is unhappy with the report's findings. That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. But first, as the government continues to contemplate delaying the full lifting of lockdown restrictions in three weeks' time, the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer, sat down for a tell-all interview with Piers Morgan. And to discuss all of this, I'm joined by Guardian columnist Zoe Williams. Zoe, it's really lovely to have you on. Did you uh, did you watch Starmer's face off with Piers Morgan on Tuesday night? I mean, I did for you, Jess, because <laughs> I'm, <sort> of, <laughs> I'm I'm allergic to Piers Morgan anyway, unfortunately. So I came out in hives because of that, and I'm very skeptical about the sort of emoting as as a badge of being a human that politicians and kind of people like Mandelson actually think is a good idea. 
I don't think it went badly. The reception hasn't been bad. You know, arguably, that's just because the people, the kind of print media people who hate Starmer want to keep him alive just long enough to hate on him a bit more. So <laughs> there were things that could have been said that I think only our own John Crace said, which is, you know, I don't want to see the leader of an opposition crying. I want to hear him talking about politics. But, you know, ultimately, I think it's, it, it's not my thing. Starmer said the reason that he did it was because there actually was a studio audience. And he says that he, you know, he's been Labour leader for 14 months. And, and that's the first time he's ever had an audience for anything he's had to say. And that's definitely, that's hugely hampered him, hasn't it? You know, in terms of getting a message out there and looking like he can talk to people. Well, yes, um, it has hampered him not seeing anybody. I think he is a sort of extroverted thinker, even if he's not an extrovert, in the sense that, you know, being among other people and listening to them and, you know, having some kind of human intercourse is hugely important to the way he formulates thought. And so it's that it's really hampered him. What I really worry about is that they, they're sort of, the lotto generally, sorry, the leader of the opposition's office generally, are colliding this kind of, we haven't been able to see anybody for 14 months with the idea that they don't want to just be preaching to the crowd. They want to preach to normal people who aren't already in the choir. So, you know, there's always this line, whether it's from him or a spokesperson, I don't just want to be talking to Labour members. Who wants to talk to Labour members? And I just think that's a really false binary because it sets up the bear trap that completely did for Miliband and in the end actually did for Corbyn, which is, you know, the people who we want to vote for us are nothing like our own members. Actually, Labour only succeeds when it conceives the people it wants to vote for it as exactly like its own members as it did in 2017. I mean, it didn't succeed that well, but succeeded more than it did any other time. So I really worry about this kind of talking to the normal people frame as an engine of, you know, political dynamism. I don't think it's right. I think, you know, you have to have some kind of sense that you are a legitimate person with things to say before you're in a town hall with a bunch of people who don't necessarily like you. That said, Yes, it's not been great to become leader of the opposition in the middle of a pandemic, <laughs> and not just because you can't go out and kiss any babies on their heads, but also because, you know, obviously there's a, there's been a huge sense in Labour that nobody wants the virus to be politicised. You know, how do you how do you oppose if you can't politicise? Did we actually learn anything of substance about Keir Starmer about? his politics, his plans for the Labour Party from that interview, what he might do in government? Well, there was very little in this. I mean, nobody wanted him to go out there and talk about policy, right? Because that would have been weird. And and Piers Morgan, you know, (laughs) if you want want to start your policy discussion, you don't start it with Piers Morgan. Right. But, I mean, what worries me is that it's, it's very anodyne. You know, there's nothing... There's nothing that cost him anything in that interview. So it's not so much that he should have come out and said, we're going to spend £453 million on buses. It's that he should have been able to say something that cost him because that's what political courage is. Whereas if you come out with a kind of, this is the man I am, the man who wishes his mother had seen him become leader of the opposition, the man who didn't really get on with his dad, the man who, you know, was quite a trot in the Surrey Labour scene, which granted was not a very large scene. It's very easy to say, this is the man I am, if the man you are is this super nice guy who's had, you know, his fair share of life's misfortunes. What people need to see from any politician is 
a statement of political boldness that some people won't like. You just won't come alive. A show of values, isn't that really? You know, I mean, it's not even that because do you remember Miliband and his values and they tried to write down Labour values and they were so contorted Mm. and hamstrung by their own refusal to pick fights or choose enemies that they ended up (laughs) naming one of their values as having strong values. You know, there's a kind of unbelievable timidity, which I think has really permeated the whole kind of mainstream Labour consciousness, which is don't say anything that's going to upset anybody. You know, don't come out against racism. Don't come out against kind of anti-immigrant rhetoric. Don't come out against cruelty. Don't come out against, don't come out and defend Stonewall. Don't do anything that you don't have to. Don't pick any fights that you don't have to. But I think the way that's perceived by the electorate is not just a lack of courage. It's also a kind of political tight-fistedness you know because people if you're going to join the game of poker people want you to put your stake in they want you to say things which cost you real enemies and until you're ready to do that you're just not going to come alive for anybody we're going to do something now that's hamstrung Keir Starmer. We're going to stop talking about the Labour Party. We're going to start talking about the pandemic again. <laughs> there was a big day on Monday. It's the first day in a very long time where there was no COVID death reported at all in the country. And obviously, that was brilliant to hear. And obviously, there's also caveats to that in that it's after a bank holiday and there's a reporting lag and we're, we're still not really seeing the effects of the May 17 reopening. But that said, it's still... It's still it's still good. How long do you think they will delay it before they make that decision? I mean, we're told June 14th is the last day that they can announce it. But, you know, do you think Boris Johnson's mind is sort of set already? To try and conceive a map of Boris Johnson's mind, it's the most impossible <laughs> thing, isn't it? You just think, you know, everything he does is expedient. Everything he does, he thinks he can get away with. Everything he does, he thinks he can go back on and nobody will remember and I I do feel for the guy the pandemic's been a nightmare for him (laughs) his whole mantra gone again it's every instinct yeah exactly what mantra before was you know what's the worst that can happen and you're like oh oh Mr Johnson this is the worst that could happen and it's just been hell and you know if you look at actually the response to Cummings's testimony most people have a very high level of tolerance for the mistakes made in the first wave because, you know, how could anybody possibly call that right in every scenario? What they do not have is any tolerance at all for the mistakes made in the second wave because they're like, we, you know, we did exactly this not very long ago at all and it actually killed more people. And And I am kind of seeing people holding him directly responsible for the deaths of the second wave in a way that I don't think anybody did in the first wave. So that's what a normal person would think. However, I don't think that's where Johnson is and I don't think that's where the kind of whole operation is. I think they're doing the fingers in ears, la, la, la thing again. They're hoping that everybody saying this could be bad is wrong and just forging ahead. And, you know, they, as, a, as gambles go, the gamble they're making is not that the virus won't spread because they do seem to be kind of up to speed with the fact that viruses do spread. The gamble they're making is that young people and those and the kind of unvaccinated population just won't be that badly hit by it. What do you think the public will make of any delay? What What strikes me when you talk to people is that the thing that people care the most about is permanency so they don't ever want to 
for restrictions to be reimposed, but they're willing perhaps to, to go longer without new freedoms being released if yeah. it means you don't ever have to roll them back. Yeah, I think that's I think that's very true actually, and I feel like that myself. That you know, I can I can adapt to some pretty stringent rules, but what I can't, what I find really hard to obey are rules that are different from one week to another <laughs> because I, it just doesn't make sense on a human level. You know, it, in a way, it makes you kind of reconfigure your understanding of what you are as a law-abiding citizen. The reason you abide by the law is that you trust that it's it's made in kind of wisdom and um, a kind of solidity of stance. But something that's legal in June and then illegal at the end of June just doesn't make sense to you at the level of your waters. Even if you could intellectualize it, it doesn't make it doesn't make kind of gut sense. And that will play a part in the in the um, question about whether to open up because you know there's no point having rules if people aren't obeying them. Um, and that certainly was a, a kind of a part of the thinking this time, well, March last year. What we're really talking about isn't so much the free, isn't so much our personal freedoms as kind of sundry industries. So we're talking about kind of festivals, large sporting events, nightclubs, as you say, um, industries that rely on a lot of bodies to kind of keep them going. Now, those those industries, obviously, they've been kind of dormant for so long now that they kind of need to water them just to see which ones are still alive mm. um, and I think that's going to be I, I think that's probably playing larger in their minds than how the average citizen is responding to the curtailment of their freedom I want to move keep on slightly on the topic but move on to a story that we wrote this week a piece by my colleague Gabriel Gretti that the Equality and Human Rights Commission have written a report that we've seen that, that that basically backs making Covid jabs for people who work with vulnerable people compulsory and Forcing people to take a vaccine is not something that Whitehall would like to do. Lots of scientists are quite cautious about it as well because they don't they think that sort of persuasion is a better art form. But all signs seem to be pointing towards it being compulsory, at least definitely in care homes, and if not, maybe for NHS workers. And what what do you think would be the significance of that? Well, I I tell you what the significance is, which is that if they think this will go down without a fight, they're animal crackers it's just not as easy as it as it sounds because my my husband works for a mental health charity and they were talking about putting a a clause into the contract saying you have to be vaccinated because obviously you know they, the the frontline workers in that charity are working with people whose underlying health is really compromised by their mental health and and it makes it perfect moral sense you know you can't endanger somebody you're meant to be caring for just for a stupid reason. <laughs> I mean, it makes perfect moral sense to us as individuals. And you think, yeah, of course. But as soon as you drill into that, you do hit the wall of not everybody wants to stay unvaccinated for the same reason. And in order to say anybody who doesn't want to be vaccinated as just being kind of selfish and a crank, you're erasing. There's a, there's a huge amount that could be challenged in that. The truth is, as soon as you get into compulsory medicalization you're on really sticky territory and 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 you know it's it's really just in terms of kind of human rights legislation you can say and francis ryan wrote a brilliant piece in the opinion pages today that you know your your right not to be vaccinated is not more important than a disabled person's right to stay alive and that's completely true but it's actually you're not really in the in the eyes of the law balancing those two rights you're saying 
my right as the state is total and complete over your right as an individual in terms of what I can inject into you. And that is extremely dicey, I'm afraid. It's lots and lots of human rights lawyers would not go down without a fight on that. And it would have implications into other areas of life. So, Williams, as always, thank you ever so much for joining us. Thank you for talking to me. I loved it. Thank you. After the break, we look at Islamophobia in the Conservative Party and what faces the newly elected Scottish Parliament. We'll be right back. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, last week, it was almost impossible to focus on anything other than Dominic Cummings' takedown of the government's handling of the pandemic. One story that failed to hit the headlines was the release of a long-awaited report into Islamophobia and other forms of discrimination in the Conservative Party. The Prime Minister came in for particular scrutiny in Professor Swaran Singh's report for historical comments made about women who wear the burqa looking like letterboxes or bank robbers, back when he was writing for The Telegraph. Overall, the report found that anti-Muslim sentiment was still present at local association and individual level, but claims of institutional racism were not borne out by the evidence. That last bit has angered some senior Muslims in the Conservative Party. Earlier in the week, my colleague Aubrey Allegretti spoke to the former MEP Sajjad Karim, who previously chaired the European Parliament's working group on Islamophobia, to get his thoughts on the report. Aubrey started off by asking Sajjad how he felt the path to getting this report published had been. Remember, during the Tory leadership campaign, Sajid Javid basically corralled the other candidates to commit to an inquiry during a live debate. Do, do you all agree, guys? Should we, should we have an external investigation of the Conservative Party into Islamophobia? Absolutely. Do they all agree? Agree? Do you agree? Yes. Excellent. So, they agree. Okay, that would well, it seems to be it's um, been an exercise in stepping back one step at a time from that commitment that was given uh, live on television to the entire nation uh, as an absolute pledge to hold an inquiry into Islamophobia. Uh, And then ultimately, uh, we've ended up at a stage where we have nothing other than a report uh, into discrimination per se, which is actually a very different thing to the commitment that was given. So immediately, it seems that once the leadership election was out of the way, uh, there was a stepping back from that pledge, uh, and almost uh, a way of trying to see how best um, the leadership and the party could walk away from that commitment. Uh, and that's never a good place to start uh, when uh, you know one is serious about dealing with these issues. 
And what do you know about how the inquiry itself was run? We know, obviously know it was overseen by Professor Swaran Singh, a former Equality and Human Rights Commissioner. But did you contribute in any way, for example, or know others that did? At the time that the inquiry was to be carried out, the party was well aware that um, I myself uh, had a particular complaint uh, that I felt needed looking into uh, at a very senior level by the party. But uh, I found that once the inquiry was underway, uh, I heard absolutely nothing. I didn't even know the inquiry was underway um, until uh, there, there was a further media report to say that the Uh, inquiry had been concluded. And I was once again contacted by the media uh, to ask what had the process been like. And I informed them that I'm very sorry, I just hadn't been contacted at all. Uh, And that then once again appeared in the media as a result of which once again, the chairman's office sent me a further email to say, we're very sorry, it's too late for you to contribute to the inquiry. Uh, It was open uh, to the public, and uh, but now it's closed. Uh, and I'm not the only one that finds himself in this position. There are many others who simply were excluded from the process. Indeed, not a single Muslim MP, we understand, gave a quote to the report. And my colleague Rajiv spoke to Muslims in the party who felt the inquiry was doomed to fail from the start, in their words. And it's quite shocking to hear that someone who's such an authority in the party on this subject was sidelined in this way. Why do you think that was? One rather gets the impression that the whole thing is seen as uh, an irritant more than anything else. I mean, the starting point is that um, you have within the inquiry, within the report, actually, no mention of addressing Islamophobia. You only have commentary on anti-Muslim sentiment. Uh, and the parties, uh, well, the re- the report in itself is saying that well, you don't have any institutionalized Islamophobia, but the reason it gives for that is that it's because the party is equally bad at dealing with all forms of in- uh, discrimination, uh, and therefore Islamophobia isn't being singled out in any particular way. Well, that really is no defence. Um, it has come out, however, with a number of recommendations that the party should follow. I am now really waiting to see uh, if the party seriously follows those recommendations. Just to remind listeners, Professor Singh's report found that there was anti-Muslim sentiment at local levels and criticised specifically the Prime Minister for comments he made in the past when writing for The Telegraph. However, obviously, many have disagreed, particularly with the review's conclusion that there was no evidence of institutional racism. You've just talked a little bit about that there. Obviously, an allegation of institutional racism is incredibly serious. So can you tell us a little bit more about what experience you've heard or seen about that? Well, I have obviously over many years heard a number of accounts from party activists. Um, I have experienced uh, Islamophobia myself within the party, uh, both at a local level and at a parliamentary level. Um, So this permeates right the way through. Um, however, it is a small minority of members uh, who uh, have been found to have uh, legitimate complaints registered against them. But what is absolutely clear is that the systems that the party has in place at this moment in time are simply not fit for purpose. Now, if the prime minister and the leader of our party and the party leadership is actually serious about making sure that the Conservative Party does not have any room for discriminatory behaviour, let alone Islamophobia, then I'm afraid they're going to have to deal with this in a very different way. 
Uh, and that's why I now feel that we really are at a stage where uh, party members like myself really have no confidence left that the party internally uh, is uh, willing uh, to actually deal with this issue. It's certainly capable of dealing with it, but it has to recognise that Islamophobia is a problem in itself. We cannot just rely on internal processes to deliver a result. And that's why uh, I certainly take the view uh, that it's time for some sort of uh, external light to be shone upon the internal workings of the Conservative Party when it comes to these issues. Obviously, the Conservative leadership extends beyond Boris Johnson. And on the day the report was published, Amanda Milling, the party's co-chair, accepted all the recommendations of the report and issued an apology, in her words, to anyone who has been hurt by discriminatory behaviour of others or failed by our system. That apology is supposed to be directed to people like you. So do you accept it? I did hear uh, that particular apology. In fact, uh, I was part of uh, a media interview with her at the time that she issued that. Uh, But along with it, I'm also aware that the Prime Minister has uh, himself, uh, leader of the party, has given uh, an apology of sorts as well, which really just is half uh, an apology. Um, It it all seems to be a part of just uh, making sure that they do enough to allow them um, to move to a place where um, they can say, yeah, we've accepted the findings, we've apologised, what more do you really want us to do? Despite all of that, I'm certainly one of those people who is saying, yes, let's give the party uh, the time uh, to make sure it carries out these particular recommendations. Boris Johnson's apology you just referred to, Mr. Cream, said he was sorry for any offence taken. What do you make of that particular form of words, only apologising for offence taken and not the actual actions? Well, I think Boris Johnson himself would probably describe that as mealy-mouthed and insincere. And obviously later that week, their Hungarian leader, Viktor Orban, visited Downing Street to meet Boris Johnson And Viktor Orban, obviously a very controversial figure, has called Muslim refugees invaders, amongst various other incendiary um, claims. So soon after the report, so how did that make you feel? Uh, Once again, it just sends, at the very least, all the wrong signals. Uh, And I would certainly actually be very interested to know what future cooperation uh, did the two of them discuss? Because the way that our politics in the UK Uh, seems to be developing is that certainly within England, um, this whole idea of uh, culture wars uh, and, uh, you know, trying to um, uh, battle a walk uh, agenda is something that's come into the fore. So I see a lot of similarities there in what is happening. Uh, So I think really we should be probing today to see quite what was discussed in terms of future cooperation between uh, the Fidesz party and the Conservative party of the UK. And finally, what do you want to see from your party leadership to take forward more serious action against Islamophobia within the party? And if they refuse to heed yours and other concerns, what's next? Well, uh, the, the issue as I see it, actually, is it's not just about Islamophobia. Uh, it's far bigger than that. It's about um, a vision for the type of society we are going to be. Are we going to be based upon culture wars and identity politics? Are we going to see a growing English nationalist vision of a future United Kingdom uh, or Great Britain? 
Um, are we therefore going to see an ever-widening gulf uh, emerging between the constituent nations on a values basis? You know, we have very strong institutions, but all of this has been developed over many, many decades and centuries. Um, and therefore, really, we need a true leadership program uh, based upon our traditional values that have been built over centuries. Uh, you know, one that focuses, and I, I can only repeat again, on us remaining an open, liberal, tolerant, rules-based society. Uh, any movement away from that, I'm afraid we are going to really put ourselves at the risk and peril of fracturing uh, internally. A very thoughtful suggestion from you there. Thank you very much for your time, Sajad Karim. Thank you for having me. I've been delighted to be here. Now. It was a month ago this week when voters went to the polls for local elections in England, Scotland and Wales. And there are several pressing challenges facing the newly elected Scottish Parliament. The Guardian Scotland correspondent Libby Brooks spoke about those issues with columnist Danny Garavelli and Kezia Dugdale, the former leader of the Scottish Labour Party. We're nearly a month on from the Holyrood elections, which saw the Scottish National Party win a landslide victory and secure its fourth successive term in government. Now, when I was reporting at the time, there was a huge amount of focus, I think often to the detriment of other issues, uh, on whether the SNP leader Nicola Sturgeon was going to get a majority to push forward with a second independence referendum. Now, in the end, of course, she did with the support of the Scottish Greens. But since then, it seems like focus has shifted pretty quickly elsewhere. We've had a significant cabinet reshuffle that prioritised the COVID recovery and the transition to a net zero economy. Last week, Sturgeon confirmed her government is now in talks with the Scottish Greens on a formal cooperation agreement for this parliament. Then over the bank holiday weekend, we've seen high profile resignations from the SNP's national executive amidst claims that the party is in crisis. Now, can I start off just by asking you, Danny, what do you think are the key challenges that are going to keep this newly appointed cabinet busy over the summer? Well, the most most immediate one, obviously, is COVID. And there's been quite a lot of unease and resentment about Glasgow remaining in level three. And the resentment's kind of heightened by the fact the Euros are due to take place next week. So they've got four matches um, and the government's approved a fan zone, which can hold up to 6,000 football supporters, I think, per day. So with gigs still off and, and other big events like the Edinburgh Festival having to, are struggling, I think there's going to be a, a lot of backlash over that. That's one of the things. And then the second really big thing, I think, is education. I think that the exam results are going to be a huge issue for Shirley Ann Somerville, who's just taken over from John Swinney and is about to walk into a firestorm, I think. This year, they didn't cancel the exam results. Um, they were, these were replaced by teacher assessments, which are exams in, under any other name. And pupils and teachers feel enormously under pressure. And I think that the whole thing is going to play out again when the results come out in August. And there's no quick fix this time. And um, so it's going to be a really testing time for her, I reckon. Yeah, absolutely. Kezia, can, can I ask just in terms of sort of voter priorities and, and you know, what, what they think are, are the key issues for, for this new government? What, what do we know about that? Well, I think as much as the case in any election... It's the economy that always comes out top. It's always different, of course, in Scotland because every political issue is seen through the prism of the constitution. So your views on the economy don't necessarily correlate with which political party you vote for. You have to see that through the constitutional prism first. So 
It's yes or no. Pick your side. You're either going to vote for the SNP and the Greens on one side or the Conservatives, Lib Dem and Labour on the other. And then within that, the next big issue is the economy. And that right now is connected to COVID, of course, because it's about the economic recovery from COVID-19. It's about what might happen in the aftermath of furlough, the degree to which governments all over the world are prepared to prop up and sustain jobs until people can uh, really get the economy motoring again. So in that sense, Scotland isn't really any different from, from any other country in the world in terms of grappling with these problems. And just keeping the, the focus on, on this new cabinet for a minute, uh, it's again a, a gender balanced one. Were there any surprises in the appointments, Danny? No, I don't really think it was very surprising. In fact, I mean, people are more likely to criticise Sturgeon on the ground that it's mostly staunch loyalists and that maybe she could have brought in more fresh faces. Uh, Angus Robertson, who was the former leader of the SNP group, he was the obvious candidate for um, Secretary for the Constitution. I think maybe some people had expected Kate Forbes to be moved to education or health because she's been touted as a potential successor to Sturgeon and there was a feeling that she needed humanised and put in a um, position where, I mean, most most um, First Ministers would have at some point been in those departments. But other than that, I don't really think there were many surprises at all. Talking talking of that, there has been a fair bit of chat since the election about the sort of great diversity of this this new parliament. How how optimistic are you, Kezia, about the the changes and sort of what impact some of those new MSPs might have? I'm really excited. I think this parliament looks more like the country it seeks to represent than any in its history has. Um, It doesn't mean that it's equal and that all is sorted. There's still work to do, but it's substantially more diverse. In the last parliament, we had just two uh, MSPs of colour, both men, both from uh, Pakistani heritage, both privately educated um, at the same school. We're we're now in a situation where we've got six MSPs of colour, which is fantastic. And across the political party, as well, which I think is, is a helpful aspect to it. We have our first um, permanent wheelchair user, MSP, and substantially more women. But that's not to say it's um, as diverse as it perhaps could be. So last week, we, we also learnt that Sturgeon had opened formal talks with the Scottish Greens on some sort of cooperation deal for, for this sort of next parliamentary session, which is obviously to do with cementing that pro-independence majority at Holyrood, but also has a lot to do with um, sort of bolstering, I guess, the party's pro-climate credentials. Danny, can, can you take us through just what that cooperation deal sort of could, could look like and why it is important now? Yeah, I think, I mean, it's really interesting, isn't it? Because in the past, I think it's been felt that the Greens have not really capitalised on their position and it's mostly been a question of, you know, extracting a few concessions here or there. And this time around, they seem a lot more ambitious. And I think that's probably partly to do with the new co-convener, Lorna Slater, who seems like a breath of fresh air. I don't think they're looking, it doesn't seem like they're looking at a formal coalition, but still some kind of agreement that might still involve um, ministers. But there's also, I mean, I can see lots of problems with it as well. I mean, we know that from previous experience with the Lib Dems, that the junior partners and coalitions often take the brunt of any criticisms that are coming with misjudgments over policy. And also there is quite a big gap, I think, in a lot of policy areas, including, you know, definitely on the environment. I mean, the SNP is still quite wedded to oil. So I think, I mean, I think there are a lot of hurdles to overcome. And also, there, also I can see flashpoints coming, you know, when we talk about the education and the results. Last time round, it was the Greens who pretty much um, pushed for the for John Swinney's U-turn. What's going to happen if they're in a formal agreement when that kind of thing comes along? 
initially I was quite confused by this. I didn't see the appeal to either party, to be honest, um, until I looked at what exactly happened in New Zealand. And then it made a lot more sense. So what happens in New Zealand, and I think the model that they're looking at in Scotland is um, a cooperation deal, as Danny describes. But the idea being that as part of the deal, you're not allowed to vote against the budget. You don't have to vote for it, but you can't vote against it. And in a parliament where that yes-no divide is 64-64 with the casting vote of the presiding officer, that gives the finance secretary a lot more breathing space to know that the Greens won't be in a position to vote against the budget. It also means that the Greens have more than one point of influence in a calendar year. They're not just negotiating behind closed doors in the run-up to a February budget. They can do it now in the open eyes and try and influence government decisions throughout the kind of length of that agreement. So there is quite a bit to it, which I think is appealing. The final thing to remember about the New Zealand deal is this idea of collective responsibility. It only applies to the ministerial roles that you share. So for example, if the Greens bargained uh, a junior job in climate change, then they would be bound by any decisions taken in that directorate, but they could do what they like on, say, health or education, which answers Danny's point about the, the degree to which the Greens could influence education or health policy decisions elsewhere across government. Just in terms of strengthening, you know, the Sturgeon's hand in in this sort of upcoming battle with Boris Johnson's government for the legal authority to hold a second independence referendum, the week the weekend after the election, there was frantic positioning and repositioning from both the new Scottish government and from the UK government uh, on the referendum question. Kezia, for people who are just sort of still still a bit baffled as as to sort of where where everyone is, can you can you just tell us now where we stand on on that referendum question and how likely you think it is to happen over the next couple of years? I'm always baffled when you see um, Scottish politics reported at a UK wide level throughout the recent election with the headline was SNP just miss out on majority as if that was some sort of failing because people forget I think that we have a very different electoral system in Scotland. It's not first past the post like we have for UK elections. It is PR essentially, an additional member system form of PR which is designed to stop majorities coming through. What there is following the May election is a majority in support for a second independence referendum in the parliament when you combine the votes of the SNP and the Greens. So I think that's exactly where Nicola Sturgeon wants it to be, to have a mandate for a referendum, but for that mandate not to be so strong as to make that referendum inevitable tomorrow. She said that she wants a referendum after uh, COVID. Now, that's a subjective phrase, isn't it? When, when does the pandemic end? But I think there's a general presumption that that won't be in the next two years, but it will be before the end of the next parliament. She can't just make that happen, though. The UK government would have to agree to a, a referendum to take place to give that Section 30 order, which creates the, the legal framework to allow the Scottish Parliament to conduct its own referendum. And that's where the Tories, at least for now, are steadfast against complete opposition to granting that power to a referendum. So if you take them at their word and that they won't change their minds, it's very difficult to see how that referendum can take a next step forward. So we've we've been... Talking, talking a fair bit about the the SNP's push for a second independence referendum, but but what is actually sort of happening with, within the party? We were talking about these high profile resignations from its NEC over the last few days, including Joanna Cherry, Douglas Chapman, and Marco Biaggi. What what kind of state is is the party in internally? 
Well, what it shows, I think, is that the defections to Alapa pre-election didn't quite purge their party of its internal tensions. I mean, that's what was being suggested and that those there are many issues still to be resolved. So Douglas Chapman and Joanna Cherry both referenced uh, a lack of transparency. They couldn't get hold of or access to information they required to do their job. And I think that that lack of transparency was pretty much highlighted by the parliamentary inquiry into the um, handling of the um, allegations against Alex Salmond. But what it does show is, I mean, it's hard to it's hard to decide what exactly that means, but it does show that some of these tensions are definitely going to, um, are, are definitely simmering away under there and need to be tackled. I guess it is interesting and topical because it speaks to where the power lies within what is, you know, the third largest party in the UK and by far and away the most dominant party in Scotland. And there is some governance work, unquestionably, for the SNP to do to tidy up the wiring of how their party operates. But I, I don't sense some great hidden conspiracy that we're all being denied uh, access to. I'm prepared to be utterly wrong about that and could be back on here in three months talking about it. I don't know. Just going going back to the the campaign itself, there were sort of many interesting sort of aspects to it. One was just looking at the performance of the Scottish Labour Party's new leader, Anas Sarwar, who was only elected a, a couple of months before the the campaign began. And I think there's been a, a great deal of agreement that he had a very strong campaign, although in in the sort of final votes that didn't necessarily sort of translate into extra MSPs. How do you think Labour is going to approach this new parliament, Danny? I think it's going to, well, yes, I think all eyes are going to be on Anna Sarwar because he performed so well in the campaign. And I think he's been um, quite careful. He knows that he, he, he's he's already doing things that Richard Leonard didn't do. He's already see, seems hyper aware of the need to create a complete Scottish identity for Scottish Labour. He seems um, aware of the complexities, if not how to resolve them, over um, where to position Labour should um, a second independence referendum happen. I mean, I suppose the, I suppose the key is, is he going to be able to walk that tightrope between, because we know that ex-Labour voters are both for and against independence, so so he has, um, he has people that he needs to um, court on both sides of that divide, and the question is going to be whether he manages to walk that tightrope, I think, in the next year or so. The Scottish Conservatives had a new leader as well, Douglas Ross. During the campaign, there was there was some criticism from within the Scottish Tory ranks as, as well as out with about uh, the narrowness of the campaign, which was very much focused on stopping a second independence referendum. But at the end of the day, that strategy paid off and uh, he managed to maintain the same number of MSPs despite having those twin liabilities of Boris Johnson and Brexit. Do you do you think that that Ross is is now going to have a bit of um, sort of room to kind of flex his his sort of muscles a bit more and and uh, sort of maybe make that positive case for the union that we're always sort of talking about, but but um, sort of waiting to really sort of see what it looks like. I mean, you're you're right. The campaign was was definitely too narrow. The 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 strategy was uh, the only thing people want to hear from the Tories is is no to India F two, and the kind of tactics was to try and pivot everything you could to that message. So you ended up in the latter stages of the campaign asking Douglas Ross if he wanted a pint of milk, and he would reply saying no. What what he wanted to do was to stop a second independence referendum, and and, and people found that that was just a, a a bit a bit too much, a bit too much of a stretch. But going into the Parliament, you're right. He's got a lot more tools. Um. At 
his disposal now to try and change the story to talk up new policy ideas and he's got a very diverse new group as well although he's not put many of the new conservative MSPs into front bench positions it might be the same thing that Nicola Sturgeon's doing which is keeping back the talent just just now knowing that she'll need it in a couple of years time to offer a refreshed team ahead of any future election. Kezia Dugdale and Danny Garavelli, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Thank you, Libby. Thank you. Just to say that John Swinney, the Deputy First Minister of Scotland, has denied the claims made by Douglas Chapman, who, as Libby mentioned, said he was not given enough information to do the job. But that's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra when Jonathan Friedland and Joan E. Greve from the Guardian US team Look at what it will take for the Republican Party to turn their back on a hugely controversial congresswoman, Marjorie Taylor Greene. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Zoe Williams, Libby Brooks, Aubrey Allegretti, Sajad Karim, Kezia Dugdale and Danny Garavelli. The producer is Daniel Stevens and Yolene Goffan. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark.